You are listening to the Biz Rock Podcast with Dr. Vince Bantu and sponsored by the Jude 3 Project. We are so thankful for those who support the mission and vision of the Jude 3 Project to help us produce content such as the Biz Rock Podcast. If you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you could do so by going to jude3project.org and hitting that donate tab. You can either give by mail or give online. Thank you so much to our supporters. We appreciate you and we hope you enjoy today's episode. The Christians in every part of the world, including Egypt, were the ones says, no, we worship only the name of Jesus. And they refused to worship Isis or Serapis. And they said, we only worship Jesus. And many of them were martyred for their faith because of that. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Vince Bantu, and welcome to the Bisrot Podcast of the Jude 3 Project. The Bisrot Podcast is a ministry of the Jude 3 Project uh, whose mission it is to equip the body of Christ and especially the black church and community with resources to know what we believe and why and how to give an answer for the faith that we have. And the Bisrot podcast uh, in particular um, focuses on resources and the study of early African Christianity. Because we know that a big issue in our community, no matter what religion or ideology or generation or um, you know, uh, community or demographic in the black community that we engage with, the question of black identity and ancestry and African, and African history and identity and its relationship with Christianity will eventually uh, come up in almost any conversation. And, and there's a lot of ideas that are popular in our community, even in the black church and, uh, and those of us uh, in, the, in the black Christian community, but even those uh, that are not believers, uh, a lot of ideas people have about African history and African Christianity, um, and some of those ideas are false and then therefore lead to uh, beliefs and commitments and values based upon false history. And so that's why we come here uh, in order to dig into African Christian history to show that the Bisrot, which means the gospel in ancient East African languages, um, that the Bisrot, the good news, has been among African people since day one, uh, from the very beginning. And, uh, and that it came in freely and uh, that it was actually the dominant faith of most African peoples in the pre-colonial period. So this, this, uh, our conversations in this podcast primarily focus uh, on the pre-colonial history of African Christianity, uh, just as a way of, of further dispelling the, the myth that Christianity came into black people's lives only through colonialism and, and, um, and slavery. Uh, but we're here to focus on areas where Christianity was, was uh, prevalent and it was predominant uh, in the early period, way before colonialism ever happened. And we have a mixture on this podcast of, of conversations, but also of, of kind of mini lectures where we give some survey of history in, uh, in the African context. And we're focusing on the four major areas of um, Christianity in the African continent. And again, when we look at the African continent, um, especially in the ancient period, you're mainly talking about like four major uh, kind of urbanized kingdoms. Uh, one of them is actually a, a, a collection of, of communities that were independent kingdoms and then later became Roman colonies, colonized by the Roman Empire. And that's the area that's collectively known as North Africa or Roman North Africa, uh, like talking about Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, Libya, uh, that, and, and really centered around Car the city of Carthage. That's one. Number two, what we're talking about today is Egypt. 
which as we know was in one of the oldest civilizations known to humanity and uh, it was a kingdom that, that had been around uh, from the beginning of human history, the written record, but by the time of Christianity had, been, had become a colony of the Roman Empire. And so that's the red we see on the map is the parts that are part of the Roman Empire. But then also in sub-Saharan Africa, you also had two other large urbanized kingdoms along the Nile Valley uh, south of Egypt, one being Nubia and the other being Ethiopia. And again, all of these kingdoms or regions had, uh, these, were the, these were in antiquity, these were the major kingdoms of the African continent that we call Africa today. And later civilizations developed primarily through trade and contact and migration from these North and East African kingdoms. And it is so important to point out and acknowledge that not just some, but all of these four major kingdoms in Africa or regions had Christianity present in them. And not only that, but that Christianity was the dominant religion in all of these areas. So it wasn't just present as a minority, but it actually became the dominant faith. And, and, and not only that, but also Christianity came in freely into North and East Africa. There was no colonization, there was no forced imposition of Christianity, but North and East Africans heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they freely chose to believe upon it and they developed churches, monasteries, and languages and literatures. If you want to study African languages like Nubian or, or Ethiopian called Ge'ez or Egyptian called Coptic, you're going to encounter Christian theology. It's the majority of it. Or if you want to read literature from North Africa in the first millennium, you're going to be mainly reading Christian theology. Uh, and so Christianity not only was not imposed upon Africans, it, it not only was foreign to Africans before European arrival, but it actually shaped African identity itself, the, some of the oldest architecture, the oldest literature um, is in these African languages is Christian in nature. And so the gospel is present all over North Africa. And so we're going to be, we focus uh, these many lectures on the four major areas of early Christianity in Africa. And today we are talking a little bit more specifically about Egypt. And we want to provide today a, a brief survey of the early pre-colonial history of the church in the kingdom of Egypt. Now, as I mentioned, Egypt is a kingdom that had been around for a very long time, back to the Pharaonic days. But uh, ever since the, even before the Roman Empire, the arrival of the Greek uh, Ptolemaic kingdom uh, and Alexander the Great had made it so that Egypt became a center really of colonization for the Greeks. And the city of Alexandria was established uh, right uh, along the Mediterranean Sea as a center for uh, thought and philosophy and also Hellenistic and Greek culture. And, and so leading up into uh, when the Romans had conquered the Greeks, um, and, and then, you know, by the, time, uh, by the time Christianity came on the scene in the first century, uh, after the life and ministry and resurrection of Jesus, um, the Egyptian region had become, had passed from the, the Greeks into uh, Rome as becoming a Roman colony. Uh, just like to the east, the, uh, along the Mediterranean coast, the North African uh, colonies were also part of the Roman Empire. But... In North Africa, or what's called Roman North Africa, you know, talking about Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco, modern day names, that the language there would, would have been Latin or the, the imperial language or the colonial language. But in Egypt, the colonial language would have been Greek. And so in Alexandria, especially, but all throughout Egypt, Greek was the colonial language in the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, um, but, but the thing is, is that uh, there was also still native Egyptian speakers as well, and they spoke a language called Coptic. 
and, and you had both languages and there was a multicultural dynamic going on, but there was also a lot of racism and there was a lot of, uh, of ethnocentrism in Egypt and in the Roman Empire that looked down upon the native Egyptian language and really prized and highlighted the Greek and uh, kind of the Greek language and Roman culture. Um, and, and, and so what, now when we talk about when Christianity came into, uh, into Egypt, Again, like North Africa, the story of Christianity has Egypt at its center. Let, lest we forget that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when he took on flesh and he was born of the Virgin Mary and being raised by his father Joseph and his mother Mary, that soon after that, his family fled uh, and they fled the king of Israel's edict. And, uh, and then they came into Egypt and took shelter there for several years. So Jesus himself grew up partially in Egypt, in Africa. And so Africa is inseparable from the very story of Christianity. And the Holy Family spending time in Egypt is at the center of Egyptian Christian identity to this day. Now, in the time of the book of Acts and the early church, the tradition, the oral tradition, and also uh, significant amounts of written records from after that time testify to the story of uh, Jesus's apostle Mark coming to Egypt and spreading the gospel. And uh, here we actually have one of the earliest uh, written evidences of this. It comes from the third century, uh, from about uh, almost two centuries after the, that this would have happened. Uh, and it's attributed to Clement, uh, who was an Egyptian theolo uh, theologian at that time, um, it's, his authorship isn't um, isn't clear, but the uh, the fact that this is a text ca that came from third century Egypt is clear. And and this text claims that, again, that Mark um, was in Egypt. It says that when Peter died as a martyr, Mark came over to Alexandria, bringing both his notes and those of Peter, and from which he transferred to his former book, the thing suitable to whatever makes for progress towards knowledge. And that's talking about the gospel of Mark um, that, that he had written. And there's a longer story called the Acts of Mark that talks about how he met a shoemaker in Egypt, uh, that in Alexandria, named Anianus, who then he led to the Lord, who was also a Jew, because as we've already talked about, originally in the first century and the second, Christianity first initially spread in Jewish communities all over the world. And because the Lord, in, in his uh, providence, chose a people of peoples to to bring to fruition the promise of salvation that he promised to Abraham when he said that all seed will be, all people will be blessed through your seed. Because the Hebrew people, by the time of the gospel or the bisrot emerging in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Hebrew people were, were spread all over the world. That's why in Acts 2, we can see that there's so many different cultures, but they're all Hebrew. Persians, uh, Greeks, Egyptians, uh, Arabs, all kinds of people, and yet they're all Hebrew. And so just like in the other parts of the world, in Egypt, the gospel first grew among, among the Hebrews, among the Jews in Alexandria, like Anianus. And then from there, Mark was actually uh, went on to Libya and he was ultimately martyred. Um, he, he spread the gospel in Libya first and then he was ultimately martyred in Egypt for the faith. Now, we don't know because the traditions about Mark that continue on from this time and the fourth century forward, there's so many uh, church historians and theologians that mention Mark coming there. So we cannot rule out uh, that, that he whether or not he came there, and he is the, uh, the, the founder of the Egyptian church. Um, you know, we, we can't say for sure that he did because the evidence for it comes from much later, uh, from almost 200 years after the fact. And, and so we, we just uh, ultimately can't know for certain, but this is, uh, there's a lot of evidence from the third century onward, and so we cannot r rule that out. Even Eusebius, the church historian, says in his account of this that he refers to an oral legend, a living oral legend that had already been very common by the time he wrote his church history in the 300s that Mark had went to Egypt. And so uh, 
Now, so now, now when you get into the later second century, that's when we and into the third, that's when we also start to get a lot more evidence and a lot more examples of Egyptian Christianity. Um, one of the earliest Bible fragments uh, in history was found in Egypt. And the weather in Egypt is real good for preserving uh, archaeological and, and, um, and, uh, and papyrological evidence. And, and so that, that also dates from the kind of mid to late first, uh, second century, excuse me. Um, I mentioned Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria was one of the first theologians uh, who lived in Alexandria, and he taught at the famous catechetical school of Alexandria. And this was a school that was essentially a seminary or a Bible school where Christians could learn and be educated in biblical studies and in theology. And really, it was as a way of kind of countering or um, uh, being able to answer. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a school of apologetical training to be able to answer against some of the heresies or some of the false teachings like Gnosticism or Martianism or all the other uh, ideologies or even you know, Greek paganism uh, in the cosmopolitan diverse context that Alexandria was. So really, the Catechetical School of Alexandria stands uh, as, as the foundation upon which even things that we're doing right now, like, um, like the Jew 3 Project uh, and this Bisrot podcast, or even uh, you know, uh, our seminary, the Meacham School of Hymenote, that we have a long tradition of academic and theological education uh, among African people. This has been with us from day one. In fact, our seminary, the Meacham School, is actually named after John and Mary Meacham, who pastored the first black church west of the Mississippi in the U.S. in the early 1800s. And they were actually, they started a seminary in their church that the state of Missouri shut down because it was illegal for blacks to even know how to read. So they took their seminary out on the boat of the Mississippi River and were teaching us in secret and found a way to get around the racist laws that built this country and the state of Missouri. So again, whether it's in African-American history or whether it's now with things like the Jew Project or the Meacham School of Hymenote or going all the way back to Egypt, there is a long track record of African Christians engaging in deep intellectual study of the Bible. And after the time of Clement, one of the best examples of theologians and one of the most prolific and, and, and well-written theologians to come out of early Egypt was Origen. Origen was the predecessor, or excuse me, the successor of Clement at the School of Alexandria, and he was the head of that school, and he wrote uh, so many different kinds of writings, uh, biblical commentaries. He had a very unique uh, and, and um, you know, natively Egyptian way of even interpreting the Bible. Um, when people were having questions about what to take literal, what's like more of an allegory or a symbol. And he had a lot of uh, interesting things to say about that. He even did like a six-part translation of the Bible in different versions of the Hebrew and the Greek, and, and, and he, was a, he was a prolific scholar. He also wrote a systematic theology of Christian doctrine called On First Principles. And then in, uh, I want to share a quick uh, excerpt from actually a dialogue he was having uh, with a, um, a non-Christian named Heraclides uh, when he was explaining to him the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of God. Um, he says here, he's, de he's describing and arguing for the, de the deity or the divinity of Jesus to Heraclides. And he says, when we pray, because of the one party, the, as in one of the parties of the Trinity, let us preserve the duality, as in the duality of there being, you know, uh, like multiple persons in one essence, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Because of the other party, let us hold to the unity. So Origen is saying that the Trinity, that the Godhead uh, is both uh, diverse and unified, that he's three in one. In this way, we avoid falling into the opinion of those who have been separated from the church and turn to the illusory notion of monarchy, who abolish the son as distinct from the father and virtually abolish the father also. So right there, Origen, is, he's, he's um, 
arguing against a common heresy uh, uh, in, that was, in, that was uh, operative in the early church that wanted to say that basically the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were just kind of different iterations or modes of the same, uh, of the same essence. It was called, people called it modalism, or it was especially by an early heretic named Sibelius. But then, on the other hand, he says, nor do we fall into the other blasphemous doctrine, which denies the deity of Christ. And so this would have been uh, what was called like adoptionism. And so the idea that Jesus was, um, you know, he was human, then he became God. He was adopted as God. And so Origen here is expressing his orthodox belief in the full deity, the full divinity of Jesus Christ and in the Trinity and, and having a balanced theology that's saying that the, that the Godhead is both distinct in a mysterious way that no human mind can fully comprehend that we worship a God who is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct um, you know, later people would use the word persons, uh, you know, and other, other uh, African contexts use, you know, words like gots uh, in, in Ethiopian language, for example. So they are three uh, persons or three gots, but in one essence or one, one, uh, one God, or to use the Nubian word, one tilla. And so this, again, is important to point out because um, Origen had a lot to say. We could do a whole hour just on him. But this is important to point out because we have many people in our community today who are, who are you know, uh, have questions or objections about Christianity and say it's a white man's religion. Christianity came from the Roman Empire. And they'll say uh, ludicrous things like, well, it wasn't until Constantine became the Roman Christian emperor, uh, which, by the way, there's you know, a lot of indications that he was not a Christian, or even if he was, he was a heretical Christian, actually. Uh, so he was not really a Christian at all. But, um, uh, but, but you know, yeah, after his time, uh, Christianity became very dominant in the Roman Empire. And they'll say things like, well, he called the Council of Nicaea, and it was only then that people believed that Jesus was God. Nobody ever believed Jesus was God. That was an idea that, you know, that's not in the Bible, and that's not in the early church. That was an idea that was invented in the 300s, and the Roman Empire used it to colonize the rest of the world. But, bruh, right here, we, we're giving you um, primary text evidence. We're giving you African evidence, origin second and third century theologian who wrote his own defense of the Christian belief in, that Jesus is God and that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct and yet unified and are completely divine. And he wrote that over a century before uh, Christianity became the so-called Roman religion and before Constantine even lived. And in fact, people like Origen and Egyptians uh, who lived in the 200s were actually persecuted for their faith. Because don't forget, bro, that at this time in the 200s, the Roman Empire is actually under pagan Roman religion. And they were trying to force Christians like Origen and Egyptian and North African and other Christians to worship the Roman gods. And African Christians like Origen refused to do that. And yet, I think Origen is also a great example to those of us today who are believers, and who, especially black and African-descended Christians who are grappling intellectually and academically and theologically and finding ways to give responses in, that are graceful and loving, but that are also critical uh, in, in order to defend and give a reason for the hope we have. Origen and Africans have been doing that from day one. Now, another thing that we have to talk about when we talk about Egyptian Christianity is monasticism. Monasticism uh, was something that really was largely rooted in Egypt. Now, it wasn't invented in Egypt. There was already monks like, you know, uh, and ascetics like the, the, you know, in the Near East, like the, the community of Qumran um, and, 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 and other parts of the Near East and Persia, even there were Christian monks. So it wasn't invented in Egypt. But some of the most famous monks in history, Christian monks, came out of Egypt. And Anthony the Great was probably one of the first and most famous uh, of the monks. Athanasius, who was another Egyptian theologian, wrote his biography, and he uh, told a great story about how he lived out in the desert, did battle with demons, and fasted and prayed, and he, uh, and he also defended orthodox belief in Egypt. And he 
uh, Anthony really kind of exemplified the what's called the 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 um, eremitic version of, of monasticism or the solitary expression of monasticism of going out into the desert and really being like Jesus like he did go out into the desert and fast and 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 rely on the word of God and do battle with the enemy that a lot of Egyptians were very keen to follow Jesus's example in this way especially because like in Israel in Egypt the desert is a very spiritual place so in a way uh, this is actually a way of even engaging Egyptian culture because even before during pharaonic times the the desert was seen as a very spiritually active place and so the Christians went to the desert to connect with the Lord but also to do spiritual warfare now after uh, shortly after the time a younger contemporary of, An of Anthony also uh, in the late 3rd and early 4th century, was an Egyptian named Pachomius, or Pahom, uh, which means falcon in the Egyptian language, or Coptic language. And Pahom, or Pachomius, was one of the first Egyptian Christians to write in the native Egyptian language, or Coptic. Um, you know, Origen, Clement, Athanasius, other folks that were earlier, uh, and even later, like Cyril, some of the, you know, Alexandrian kind of uh, patriarchs, they would often write in Greek. But Pacomius represents when Christianity is now starting to be written and articulated in the native Egyptian language or Coptic. And he wrote a collection of rules for how the monks should live. Because, see, as the Roman Empire was uh, kind of popularizing and in a way even almost kind of, um, you know, secularizing Christianity in a lot of ways, there were a lot of Christians like Pahom or Pacomius and Anthony who said, you know, we don't want this comfortable kind of nationalized religious nationalism and comfortable Christianity. We want to be like the martyrs and the folks who really uh, took following Jesus seriously. So they would live um, and go out into the desert communities and they would live and dedicate themselves to pr prayer and fasting. Um, but Pahom, he actually created a communal style that rather than being alone, his argument was that actually we can do this better if we're together and we can build a Christian community in these desert towns and villages and communities uh, or even right outside of Alexandria. They were all over Egypt. And, and these became the, the platform or kind of the format for later uh, monastic communities that would develop in Europe. When the gospel came into places like Ireland, Scotland, uh, England, um, you know, Germania, and all these places in the, you know, uh, like 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries, much later than this, they largely modeled their style of monasticism on, you know, the Pacomian style that originated in Africa and Egypt. Now, the other thing I want to point out about Pahom is, uh, and this is actually from his biography. Definitely get his biography and read it, because, again, this is one of the first biographies or first texts written in the Egyptian language about a Christian. And it was written uh, in the early 4th century, in the 300s. And this, actually, this part here talks about Pahom's conversion. He was born and raised in the city of Thebes, which used to be the Egyptian capital. So you know the, that Kemeticism or Egyptian religion was thick in Thebes. And, and you know, this was uh, still a time where Christians were very prominent in Egypt, but there were also still a lot of uh, practitioners of Egyptian religion, or what are called pagans sometimes. And so Pahom's parents actually raised him in the traditional Egyptian religion, worshiping Horus and Isis and, and, and Osiris and, and, and Ra and all of that stuff. And he already, as a young person, his biography says, had the Holy Spirit inside of him. He already had a knowledge of the triune God and of Jesus. So he was not down with Egyptian religion from the get-go. And this actually is a story where his parents tried to take him and do their traditional praying and offering uh, sacrifices to the gods in the Nile River, like the worshiping the alligators and the hippos and all that kind of stuff. And Pahom wasn't trying to do it. Uh, it says, as a child, he, uh, his parents took him with them somewhere on the river to sacrifice to those creatures that are in the waters. When those creatures raised their eyes in the water, they saw the boy being Pahom. They took fright and fled away. Because how many of us know that at the name of Jesus, the enemy must flee? Amen. 
Then the one who was presiding over the sacrifice shouted, this is the priest, the, the traditional priest now, chase the enemy of the gods out of here so that they will cease to be angry with us. For because of him, they do not come up. The, 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 the demonic presence there was, was scared of the presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit that was in this Egyptian boy named Pahom. At once, his parents reproached him. Why are the gods angry with you? The boy signed after God and went away home. Another day, they brought him with them to the temple where they were going to offer a sacrifice. After the sacrifice, they gave him a drink of the wine they had poured out for the demons. These are the libations. But at once, he vomited it out vigorously. And his parents were distressed about him because their gods were hostile to him. So imagine the imagery of this. You have traditional Egyptian libations dedicated to the Egyptian gods, Horus and all that, and they're, being, they're forcibly trying to pour this down this little Christian Egyptian boy's throat, and the Holy Spirit inside of him just vomits it out. This does not only speak to a powerful example of an early African Christian whose name we didn't know and learn about, but this also speaks to the reality that Christians in Egypt and practitioners of traditional religion did not see themselves as doing the same thing. And I need, and, and I need us to understand that because many of us who will engage with uh, comedic uh, people in our community, uh, in the African-American community and in other African diasporic and African communities, we got a lot of folks that are saying, you know, we need to go back and uh, we need to go back to the ancient religion of Africa. We need to worship Horus and Isis and Osiris because that's, that's our real religion. Uh, and we need to reject Christianity and Islam and Judaism because they're all, you know, um, not from Africa. And we need to go back to Egyptian religion. We need to go back to Egypt. Bruh, if you go back to Egypt, you're going to find people like Pahom and Shenouda and Athanasius and Origen and Cyril and Benjamin of Alexandria. These are all Egyptians. They wrote in the Egyptian language and they themselves freely decided to reject the, the traditional Egyptian religion. When they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ like Pahum did, they said no to Osiris and they said no to Isis and they said yes to Jesus of their own accord. And in fact, they even died for it. No, um, no Egyptian who practiced and worshiped Horus or Isis died for their faith. Why? Because the Romans didn't care if they worship ISIS. Why? Because the Egyptians, they would just do both. Oh yeah, we'll build a temple and we'll worship ISIS and Serapis, the Greek goddess, in the same temple. And the Romans were cool with that. They would say, okay, cool. As long as you worship our gods too, you can still worship your little Egyptian gods, just do both. The Christians in every part of the world, including Egypt, were the ones says, no, we worship only the name of Jesus. And they refused to worship ISIS or Serapis. And they said, we only worship Jesus. And many of them were martyred for their faith because of that and died for their faith. So Egyptian Christians went to the death and were persecuted because of the name of Jesus. They clung tightly to the name of Jesus and not all these other, you know, kind of gods. They're not trying to, uh, they're trying to be faithful to Jesus and, and not be religiously polygamous. You know, a lot of times people want to say like, um, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, well, it's okay because part of native African religions is not having any kind of distinctions. Uh, and that's a Western concept. But you can embrace all kind of gods. That in some cases that is a part of African culture and European and Asian and almost all cultures had that originally. But do we really believe in that? Because are, are any of us really okay with somebody telling us if you're married, if your spouse tells you, yeah, I love you, I'm committed to you, but I also got some other people on the side too. No, we don't operate like that. Faithfulness to the one true God is a part of true worship unto him. And that's not a European concept because, again, it was Africans like Pahom who were the ones saying, no, we only worship Jesus. There was an exclusivity to the worship. And, what, and who were they rejecting? Whose polytheism or pluralism were they rejecting? Europeans, Romans. So actually, 
pluralism actually comes from, whether it's, whether it's 19th century German scholarship or whether it's ancient Roman religion, pluralism is a European invention uh, and actually exclusive faith and devotion to the one true God is extremely African concept and thing to do. Um, so, uh, but at the same time, another point I wanna make is that while Egyptians like Pahom and other folks in some ways rejected their own, even their own religion, their own ancestry, um, and, and, and areas of it that are not in agreement with Scripture, they also embraced it at the same time. And they also used it in areas where it's in agreement with Scripture to celebrate and to worship God. There's a picture I included there of an Ankh uh, that was a cross. This is actually from a Christian monastery um, in Egypt from the 6th century. And so here we see, uh, in some ways, Egyptians were actually take. Now, the Ankh is a, is, a, is, a, is a thing that they took and used to, to worship God and to exemplify the cross. Because the Ankh is an ancient symbol of life. It mean, it's a symbol of new life. And all of us have new life through the cross of Jesus Christ. So this was a contextualization. So the Egyptians didn't merely say, now that we're Christian, we have nothing to do with our ancient ancestry. But there is a selective process by which all of us both reject, but also embrace our ancestry, and it has to be both. And yes, it is true that many of us, even in the black church, and certainly in Christendom more broadly, have just completely demonized African spirituality and African original cultures and language and concepts. And to be sure, there are some things that need to be rejected, but not all of it, because through common grace and through revelation and, uh, and, and all the other things you want to call it, God has, God's presence has been known, Romans 1, in, among every people group, so that all people have a knowledge of him, and, and, and God's presence is already among, and his image is upon everybody. So there's elements of Egyptian culture that are not all bad and need to be rejected. And if we have issues with that, let's just think about where Christmas trees and Christmas reefs and Easter bunny, or even the name of Easter, comes from. And, and let's be consistent about, uh, amen, about how we are, uh, you know, kind of uh, being okay with embracing European paganism or pa pagan languages and imagery, but then we want to demonize African imagery. The Egyptians, like Pacomius and Shenouda, who I want to talk about next, had a good balance of both embracing their Egyptian culture, but also rejecting it where, where, where it's in line with scripture. Now, I mentioned Shenouda. That is another name that we need to know. As I mentioned, Pacomius was one of the first Egyptians to write in the native Egyptian language. But Shenouda was the, one of the next ones, the next big one. He lived in the late fourth and early fifth century, but he's the best. So if you want to look at Egyptian language and literature, you got to go to Shenouda. Shenouda is one of the first and best writers in the history of the Coptic language, which is the Egyptian phase of the language. You had hieroglyphics, you had hieratic, you had demotic. Then during the Christian period, you had Coptic. It's the Egyptian language written with Greek letters. And the greatest writer, just think about this. This cannot be overstated. The greatest writer in the history of Egyptian language, which is one of the oldest languages in the world. It's the oldest African language on the African continent. And its greatest writer that it has ever produced was a Christian monk theologian. Just think about that. That is an example of the point that I made at the beginning of this podcast that you cannot study African history without studying Christianity. Indeed, the two go together and the gospel gives birth to African literature and to African literature like Egyptian literature like Shenouda wrote. So Shenouda was also a monk and a monastic leader in the style of Pacomius, um, and he lived a bit later, um, you know, and, and he uh, led a monastery, uh, actually a monastic community in southern Egypt, or what's called Upper Egypt, and, and it had thousands of monks. And one of the interesting things about Shenouda also is that he was very known and still is known for being a strong advocate for the poor and the oppressed, and his monastery was not, in addition, it was a holistic thing, in addition to teaching people the gospel, 
uh, teaching people to avoid paganism or traditional religion where it's necessary and, and not commit idolatry and teaching people right religion and worship of Jesus Christ and gathering for spiritual disciplines, fasting, prayer, and all of that stuff. In addition to all that stuff, these monastic communities were centers of community development and of social justice for the poor and the oppressed. For native Egyptian religion, you had to be rich to really do that stuff. Think about it. In the ancient world, to wrap up your dead ones in a mummification and afford a nice little tomb and afford an artist that can paint the eye of Horus all over it and protect them uh, in the afterlife and all that kind of stuff, that costs money to build a little shrine and all that kind of stuff. So the traditional religion was most popular among the wealthy. And the poor often couldn't afford to do all that stuff. Praise be to God that you don't have to have money to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. All you need is grace by faith. So the poor were actually more and more draw, being drawn to Christianity and the specific Egyptian form of Christianity as practiced by Pacomius and Shenouda. In fact, in Pacomius' biography, he says that one of the things that drew him to Christianity more than anything was actually how radically loving and empowering they were of the poor in Egypt. That's what they were known for. Shenouda, he used to, he, his writings were actually a lot of times public sermons that he said in the, in the monastery. And you had people from all walks of life. Don't, you know, don't ever think that these monastic people were off separated from the world. You had, you had politicians, you had uh, magistrates, you had uh, the poor, you had, every, you had local pagans and people of every religion, social class in Egypt coming to his monastery, hearing him speak. And he would publicly from his pulpit condemn the acts of the rich and the wealthy and the oppressive. Look what he says here in his sermon called, God says through those who are his. He says, the negligence of unbelieving and abusive masters will be on them. He's talking to some of those people in his congregation that day. And the righteousness of believing slaves will be on them. Where will go, there is no slavery for those who free themselves now from slavery to sin. Therefore, inasmuch as each person will give account of himself to God, pay heed to what is written. Depart, depart, do not touch what is unclean. Do not have fellowship with the works of those who are slaves of Kronos, who love and are mad for Hecate. These are some of the Greek gods that also, like Kronos, was equivalent to Petbi. Because again, you know, again, you know, the, uh, the Egyptians, when the Ptolemies and the Romans conquered them, the, the Egyptian pagans, actually, they just, they, they let themselves be colonized and said, yeah, we'll worship Roman gods too. And do Kronos along with Petbi or Serapis along with Isis. The Egyptian, it was the Egyptian Christians, actually, that kept it the most real and actually said, no, we reject, uh, we reject our own paganism and we reject that of the Roman Empire as well. And they kept it real, which is something that's going to be very important for the last phase of Egyptian church history that we're going to talk about. But again, I want to point out how, notice how Shenouda is talking and condemning the slave owners. Back in the day, again, a lot of the Christians who were poor, they were, he's calling them slaves. It wasn't actually slavery, but it was economic slavery, like we got going on right now. There were people who were trapped into low-paying jobs and un, unjust working conditions, and often they were Christians. And the wealthier people in southern Egypt were the pagans, were the people who worshipped uh, Isis and Horus and all that. And they would oppress the Christians because they refused to worship those gods. They would, and they, but oftentimes it was an economical sense where they would refuse their Christian employees from taking the day off on the Pascha or on the resurrection day. They would not allow them to go to church. They wouldn't, they wouldn't allow them to fast. Or they would try to force them to, uh, and these weren't politicians. These were just their, their employers. They would try to force the Christians to wash in the ceremonial Roman baths that a lot of those pagans had in Egypt. And Shenouda would publicly get up in the pulpit and condemn the injustice of people. He would condemn the way that they were being paid low wages and they were being treated poorly. The, the employment injustice in Egypt, Shenouda would speak against. And this is a powerful example of how early African Christians 
not only preached the gospel, but they also spoke out and fought for social justice. And this is also has been the history and the trajectory of the black church in America, which has been a center both of orthodox teaching and of social praxis. The, so, the civil rights movement came out of the black church and black preachers. And even now today, the black church in the black community is still the number one institution that people in the hood, when, when you wanna go somewhere, when you need uh, help, advocacy, or resources, the black church is still the number one thing, institution, on the front lines in the black community. We're not saying it's perfect, but it's still the number one black institution for black people in this country even today. And there's a long track record for that. Because again, just like in ancient Egypt, the, the Christians were the ones on the front line of empowering the poor and critiquing the wealthy. Shenouda here, is, uh, he often talked about a specific wealthy landlord named Gessius, who he would critique a lot. And so this is the, re this is the legacy of African Christianity. Now the last thing I wanna mention and I wanna talk about is something that was very, uh, uh, very consequential for Egyptian and world church history. In the year 451, there was a Roman council uh, called the Council of Chalcedon. And in the Council of Chalcedon, the, uh, it really it was actually a reaction. The council was a reaction to a, an Egyptian council in 449, two years later. At that time, a lot of theologians in Egypt and in Rome and Constantinople were arguing about what's the best way to talk about Jesus. Uh, because everybody believed uh, that Jesus was fully God and fully human, but they had different ways of talking about that. And in Egypt, a lot of the Christians and the patriarchs said that the best way to talk about Jesus is that he has one nature, that his humanity and his, his divinity exist after the incarnation of one nature. Many of the Roman theologians, they didn't agree with that. And they said, no, no, he has two natures, but he's one person. So even the distinction between one person or hypostasis and two physis uh, is, is a very Hellenistic and Greek kind of distinction. But in Egypt, now in Egypt, the patriarchs were, were speaking and writing in Greek, but a lot of the people spoke and wrote in Coptic. And so those words didn't always translate the same way. And especially in Syriac and then later in, in the Ethiopian language, Ge'ez and other places, those same concepts didn't exactly translate. So you had this semantic debate going on. And uh, in Egypt in 449, they said, no, Jesus is one nature after the union because they didn't want to say, to them it felt like you were saying there's two different Jesuses when you say there's two natures. Um, and so they, they rejected that, and in 449, they argued that Jesus is one nature. Well, the Council of Chalcedon came two years later as a reaction and, and said, no, that, that, that council the Egyptians did didn't count. That was just a, a, a robber council, and now we're going to set it straight. So we're going to say Jesus is one person and two natures. And that became what is still seen as the only right orthodox position in most of Western Christendom and even Protestantism around the world. But what had happened was the Egyptians there said, no, we, are, we, don't, we don't agree with that. And it was really a misunderstanding because everybody on the sides believed that Jesus is fully God and fully human. They just had different words about how to articulate that, that his humanity and divinity exist in distinct natures or his humanity and divinity exist in one nature. You know, it was a semantic thing that even in modern churches, they're saying, yeah, we were really not understanding each other back then. But what happened was, what, what happened was systematic oppression of the Roman church upon the Egyptian church. And later, as the gospel spread, and, and this, this one nature theology called Miaphysitism, or Miaphysites, um, that, that began to grow in Syria, in Arabia, in, um, in, uh, and also in Armenia, and then later in Nubia and Ethiopia, which we'll talk more about later um, in other episodes. But that as, as these other regions noticed that these are regions in Africa and the Middle East and Asia, as they began to develop their own Christology, they became increasingly seen as heretical 
uh, by the dominant Roman church, and they were oppressed, especially in Egypt, which was actually part of the Roman Empire, even though it had its own theology and its own structure. But they strongly rejected it. So right away, the Roman Empire sent bishops and with, that had their own armies, their own Roman army, coming into Egypt saying, y'all better say Jesus is two natures. And the Egyptians, the more they did that, the Egyptians said, no, we're not saying that. And Roman soldiers and bishops started killing um, Egyptian priests, monks, pastors, leaders, started killing them, started, would whip them. I mean, in the style of early martyr stories, only instead of like back then when it was a pagan persecuting a Christian, now it's Christian on Christian. Only it's European Christians oppressing Egyptian Christians, whipping them, saying, say two natures. And they just keep whipping them. And the Egyptians are saying, no, he's one nature. We don't, we don't accept your council of Chalcedon. This went on for 200 years where the European church oppressed the Egyptian church and the churches of, of the Middle East and the Near East. And, uh, and, and that, what, that hap- what, what that resulted in was a bitter uh, schism between the churches of Africa and Asia and the churches of Europe. And, and that lasted to this day. And so that is a major reason why, if you've ever asked yourself, a lot of this history we're talking about, a lot of these African and Asian theologians that we've never even heard of, why have we never heard of them? This is the main reason why. Because even to this day, you will sometimes read Western or white evangelical or other church history textbooks saying things like these folks were not even Christians, which is completely ridiculous. When you read their own theology, like read Timothy Elyris's against Chalcedon, his refutation of the Council of Chalcedon, you will see clearly that these people were Orthodox Christians. They believed in the Bible as the word of God. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus Christ. They just don't want to say the wording of, of two natures because to them, that's like turning the Trinity into a quaternity or turning three into four. So you had this semantic debate, but when one side had more power and they had an army behind them, they sent them into Egypt and began to try to colonize them. But here's the encouraging thing, especially for believers, but especially for uh, uh, Christians of color and black Christians, is that the more the European church began to try to impose their theology in Egypt, the more the Egyptian church rejected it and stood on their own grounds. So rather than saying, oh, we need to be like the dominant church culture and their theology, we need to embrace theirs. They said, no, we have our own church structure. We have our own doctrine. We have our own uh, uh, styles of doing church, and we will embrace that instead. And, and it just kept on, it kept on to the point where their own theology, their miaphysite, one nature theology, became synonymous with Egyptian identity and racial identity. Notice an example of that in the Pope Benjamin of Alexandria. Benjamin of Alexandria was the Pope of Egypt or the patriarch, before, during, and after the Islamic conquest. He lived in the mid, like the first half of the 600s. And so he saw Egypt when it was under Roman control. And then for a little bit, it was under Persian control because the Romans and Persians were fighting each other. But then the more they fought each other, that just weakened both. Then Islam comes up in the middle of both and, and conquers both of them. Ends the Persian empire and conquers half of the Roman empire. And that included Egypt. So now Benjamin, it went from Roman to Persian to now Islamic dominance. But here's the interesting thing. Benjamin, uh, who's the pope, and, and he actually was, he was actually like a little bit more friendly with the Muslim rulers in Egypt more than he was with the Roman Empire. A lot of people think that, you know, uh, that like, when the Muslims came in, there was just all this tension and oppression. And that later happened. But in the earliest centuries of Islamic dominance in Egypt, there was actually a lot of, you know, cordiality. And the population was still mostly Christian, even though Muslims were in charge from the seventh century going forward. But interestingly, like, people like Benjamin, they actually displayed greater anger towards the Romans who had been oppressing them for 200 years before, especially because from their eyes, they were heretics, the Chalcedonian heresy or the two-nature heresy. And so the, the reason I'm bringing that up is because 
Uh, this also, I think, can relate to sometimes even in our own community uh, as black Christians, sometimes we might even find ourselves in certain situations feeling like we have more in common with another black person who's not even a Christian, who's a Muslim or a 5% or a Hebrew Israelite, whatever, because at least sometimes they will still be more on the same page with us when it comes to justice issues or police brutality or mass incarceration, whereas sometimes some of our white brothers and sisters who say they're followers of Jesus will be, you know, putting certain people in office and putting 80% of their, their, their backing behind some, uh, behind like uh, nationalistic, xenophobic, racist, misogynistic candidates. And sometimes we're wondering like, we're supposed to be one in Christ, but you know, uh, we, we, you know, we, we're not really feeling that that unity right now. And the similar thing happened in Egypt. But, you know, much like the black church in America, the Egyptian church developed their own unique style. They didn't allow the Roman church telling them that they were heretics. They didn't allow that to make them think that they were and that there's something wrong with their theology. They dug deeper into it and they refuted their own Egyptian people who were non-believers and, and tried to win them to the Christ. They also, though, rejected the oppression, the military, economic, and theological oppression of the Roman church that happened for 200 years. And Benjamin um, re represents that. And again, interestingly, even after the Muslim conquered, he describes that time as like a better time for him. That now, thankfully, <laughs> he, he, he almost celebrates the fact that the Muslims took over Egypt and saying like, thank God that the, the Roman heretics are gone. And now, now, the, now because the Muslims had conquered, the, the real church from Benjamin's perspective was more able to flourish and thrive. And he began rebuilding the church. As he was rebuilding the Egyptian church, which had been persecuted by the Roman church for 200 years, he went to a monastery. And this is a great, again, example of how, as I said, Egyptian Christian identity and Egyptian identity just went hand in hand for Egyptian Christians. They, they, were, they were the same. Um, much in many ways, for example, as African-American culture in many ways is rooted in the black church, that, that so much expressions of African-American culture is defined by, in many ways, by the black church. Um, he, Benjamin's going around and reestablishing monasteries, and then he, but he notices that because of the persecution of the Roman uh, Chalcedonian church, that many of them had changed their faith and had, from his perspective, apostatized because they embraced the Roman doctrine. But he comes to one and notices that they had not, but they stuck, they stuck close to the Egyptian doctrine of one nature, or the Miaphysite faith. And notice uh, the reason he gives as to why that is. He says, now the place wherein the patriarch dwelt was a pure habitation without defilement, in a monastery called the Monastery of Metris, which was the Episcopal residence. For all the churches and monasteries which belonged to the virgins and monks had been defiled by Heraclius the heretic. Heraclius was the Roman emperor in the early and mid 600s who was helping the Roman church oppress um, the Egyptian church. And in fact, he sent, uh, he kicked Benjamin out as the pope and Heraclius the emperor put another pope in his place. Um, I forget his name. Uh, oh, his name was Cyrus. And uh, he was uh, from the Caucasian region, like the Caucasus mountain region, like Albania or Armenia. And so the Egyptians would always refer to him as Cyrus the Caucasian. Uh, not in the same way we use the word, but the fact that they are ethnically differentiating him shows how, again, for them, their faith was one that was of Egyptian culture. And this other faith, this Chalcedonian faith of Heraclius and the Roman Empire and the Roman church is foreign to us as Egyptians. So he says here, that all the churches and monasteries which belonged to the virgins and monks had been defiled by Heraclius the heretic when he forced them to accept the faith of Chalcedon. That's that Council 451 uh, where the Roman church decided that Jesus was one person in two natures, and that became the definitive doctrine for much of Western Christendom that I was talking about. He says they forced him to accept that, except this monastery alone, the monastery that Benjamin was in, the monastery of Metris. And here's, here's what he says. 
So he basically is saying that a lot of the churches and monasteries, they accepted what he considered to be the defiled European faith of the Roman emperor, except this monastery. And he's going to say why. For the inmates of it were exceedingly powerful, being Egyptians by race, and all of them natives without a foreigner or a stranger among them. And therefore, he could not incline their hearts towards him. For this reason, when the father Benjamin returned from Upper Egypt, he took up his residence with them because they had kept the Orthodox faith and had never deviated from it. Notice what Benjamin said. He said that a lot of his people, uh, because the dominant church, backed by the dominant empire, was coming into their community trying to tell them, you're not real Christians because you're not like us. He said a lot of them succumbed to that because they had power, because they had influence, because they were persecuting them. But he said, not this monastery. And why did he say? He said, because this monastery is full of Egyptians by race. He's saying that they are racially Egyptian. And so what, what that means then for Benjamin is that being Egyptian means being orthodox. That if they're Egyptian, that an Egyptian person, according to Benjamin, is more likely to stand firm in orthodox Christianity and not succumb to, uh, you know, like the, the, what he would say, the heretical faith of the Roman Empire. This is so crucial because what it shows is that not only was Christianity present in Egypt, not only was it predominant, but, but after the split, after there was a split between the European and African Christianities, the, many of the African Christianities, they expressed their own doctrine. They didn't say, oh, well, we need to be like you because you're the ones who decide what's orthodox and what's not. They dug into their own traditions and they said, we good. We don't need y'all, especially if you're going to come in and persecute us, that we don't, we don't need your particular expressions of faith and your styles. We have our own. They dug into their own Egyptian pride. And even for him, being Egyptian was a marker of being orthodox theologically. It shows the Egyptian pride that many of them had. And that continued on even after um, going, going further into uh, times in the 10th century when Arabic started to become more the dominant language and a lot of Egyptian Christians stopped, stopped speaking their language. That there were, uh, there, were, there were some Christians who were trying to get them to keep speaking it because for them, the Egyptian language was, was the same as being a Christian. And for them, they associated Arabic with the religion of Islam. And so... Again, in the, in the 10th century, there was a text called the Apocalypse, Apocalypse of Samuel of Kalamon, and this person, this Egyptian monk named Samuel of Kalamon was basically saying, he's trying to get Egyptians to stop speaking Arabic and only speak Egyptian, because again, for him, that's the language of Jesus, and Arabic is the language of, of Islamic invaders. He says, and uh, he's kind of like uh, giving up like sort of a prophecy of what's, uh, it's already happening, but he's kind of speaking it like it's in the past and it's going to happen. He says, they, they being the Egyptian Christians, they will abandon this language, i.e. Coptic, to speak Arabic and to worship in it to the point that we can no longer recognize them as Christians. But they will be taken for Berbers. And what he means by that is Muslims. Uh, Truly I say to you, my children, that those who give up the names of saints to give their children foreign names, those who act this way will be excluded from the blessing of the saints. And anyone who dares to speak the language of the Hagira, that's like Hajj and, or like pilgrimage, that's another way of saying Arabic. Anybody who dares to speak the language of the Hagira inside the temple or as in the church, that one will deviate from the ordinances of our holy fathers. Look at the way that Samuel of Kalamon is, is, um, is imagining Christian identity as one and the same with Egyptian identity and with the Egyptian language. And he is associating the Arabic language with Islam. Now, most you know, Christians today, most Coptic Christians today, speak, speak Arabic as their daily language because Coptic died out not that long after this. It died out as a living language. But here's the, here's the, here's the thing that's interesting. Today, in 2021, 
If you want to hear the Egyptian language being spoken, if you want to see it being written, the best place for you to do that is to go to a Coptic church. It's to go to a church. The church of Jesus Christ is the only institution that is keeping the Egyptian language alive. The Egyptian language is one of the oldest languages in the world. It's the oldest African language. It's at the core of African civilization. And it's dead now as a living language. And the only people keeping it alive are followers of Jesus, are Coptic Christians in the church. You can go to a Coptic church and hear them chanting and singing, worshiping Jesus in the Egyptian language, because even though through oppression of, of Muslims that eventually happened, their language was stamped out, they still are keeping it alive. They're still keeping their identity alive. And because four of them, being Egyptian and being a Christian in their own unique theology, is a part of what it means to be an Egyptian Christian. And that testifies to the fact that not only was Christianity not imposed upon Egyptians or Africans, but in the case of Egypt, they went to their death to defend the gospel. And when European Christians tried to tell them they didn't have the right theology, they rejected that and say, okay, well then you can uh, be over there and we'll keep doing our own theology because we believe our theology is good and it is suitable for our people. And they saw their language and their ethnicity and their religion all as one and the same. So Christianity was not seen as antithetical or opposite to Egyptian identity. Rather, it was presented by the Egyptian church as the very extension of Egyptian identity. And last thing is no Egyptian Christian or Egyptian pagan ever saw Christianity as copying paganism. A lot of the pagans, as we can see in this evidence, they hated the Christians. In fact, there was a riot in Alexandria in the mid uh, and late 400s between practitioners of people who worshiped Horus and the Christians. They were, they were fighting with each other. So there was absolutely no sense on either side that Christianity was a copy or that Christianity was anything like Egyptian religion. They were completely separate from each other and Egyptian Christianity was also very separate from the dominant Roman Christianity. So again, there's a lot of parallels and a lot of connections between modern black Christianity, which often itself finds itself being uh, you know, at odds and persecuted by dominant white society, even those that claim to be Christians, and also find themselves at odds against you know, heretical groups and false teachings in our community by people who look like us. And, in the and, and we are standing in that same middle ground defending the faith that the ancient Egyptians like Origen, like Pacomius, like Shenouda, like Benjamin did in the motherland hundreds of years ago. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, I hope this was a helpful survey of uh, pre-colonial Egyptian church history. But uh, hit me up, uh, you know, and I would love if you have any questions. Um, and, you know, again, my, my book, Multitude of All Peoples, goes more uh, in depth into this. Uh, and, and, um, and also, uh, you, there's, again, I would love to talk to you about any other resources about if you want to learn more about Egyptian uh, church history. Uh, but until now, uh, until then, we will see you on the next Bisrod podcast. Thank you so much again for tuning in to the Jew 3 Project, uh, where we help you to know what you believe and why. And we will see you again for our next episode of the Bisrod podcast. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the BizRot Podcast with Dr. Vince Bontu, sponsored by the Jew3 Project. Remember to rate and subscribe wherever you stream your favorite podcast. And remember, if you want to help support the mission and vision of the Jew3 Project to help black Christians know what they believe and why through this podcast or other avenues, you could do so by going to Jew3Project.org and hitting that donate tab to give by mail or to give online. Every gift helps equipped, and we're so thankful for your support and your prayers. We appreciate you. And until next time, grace and peace and God bless.